Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. It's good to see you this morning. I went to a meeting the other day. It was the, uh, the first annual camouflage club meeting. It was a total disaster. I, I couldn't see anyone. No one, it, it looked like no one showed up. Sorry. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. How about this one then? This is my favorite. I taped a piranha to my boomerang. Yeah, I think that's going to come back to bite me. <laughs> oh, you forgot your mic? excitement of the baby dedication. I forgot my mic. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Oh, hey, well, you know what? It's a privilege to have my wife with me again. We're going to do one more week next week. We're going to talk about boundaries among extended family. That should be sort of fun. Uh, Boundaries with extended family. Uh, We'll get there. Yeah. The whole place is going to be packed. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So today, what are we talking about, though? We're going to talk about parents and children. Now, whether you are a parent in the place or you've never been a parent, that's okay, because you're a child, right? No matter what way this applies to you. And these are good life principles regardless. Um, You're gonna find these applicable on jobs and things like that. So we're talking about parents and children today based on the story of Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, and this story of Abraham is a story we've been walking through now for a couple of weeks. We found out that Abraham was a, a man who received a lot of promises from God. God delivered a lot of promises to him. And then Abraham, he starts trying to walk out those promises, and he doesn't always do it right. That's why we call the sermon series Faith, Family, and Failure, is because even though he is called in the New Testament the friend of God and the father of faith, we find out that he's less than a perfect man. But do not doubt that this less than a perfect man, being a man of faith, reshaped the world as we know it. He did so by doing two things, and that's what we're going to point out again today. There are two things he did. He had defining moments where he obeyed God. And and that we may not understand, we may not identify with them, but there are defining moments. We're going to talk about one of those defining moments today where he obeyed God. And then the second thing he did was he passed his relationship with God, his experience with God, on to the next generation. We now have his stories because he shared his stories with the next generation. And so Abraham's parenting was a defining moment in his life as well. Now I'm going to tell you from the get-go, I struggle with this story. It's not one of my favorite stories in the Bible. As a matter of fact, I've struggled for years and we have wrestled through this story because it's the story of Abraham and Isaac. And if you're familiar with the story, we're about to read it. But Abraham's about to sacrifice his only son, the heir that God promised him. And if you're a parent in the room, your heart just leaps for that. And you're saying, why would you even think or consider that? And I have to think that Abraham thought the same thing. His mind must have just been going crazy with different, why is God asking me to do this? He just said, Isaac was my promised child. So there's a lot of different emotional dynamics here. And when you get right down to it, um, this story defines culture and definition from here on out. And mind you, it was passed through Isaac. So he lived through. So we're going to look at that today. Yeah. And, and the Bible also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, it says that things that happened to them happened as examples to us. So what happened to Abraham 
is something we can learn lessons from, that he had these experiences to teach us something. So that's what we're going to look at today. And uh, to do that, would you stand to your feet in honor of God's Word? We're going to read from Genesis chapter 22 today. And we're going to read the entire story. Y'all ready? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. This is sort of funny because it's in here three times, your only son. Was Isaac literally Abraham's only son? No. What was the other son's name? Anybody know? Ishmael. Ishmael. So he had another son, but it is... This is one of the reasons I believe the story is written from the perspective of the only son named Isaac. All right. So, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, you stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship then what? Is anybody reading this on the screen? We will worship and then what? We. Who will come back? We. I thought he was going to sacrifice his son. Hmm. We will come back to you. And because of this statement and the tense of the pronoun here, the New Testament author, there's a New Testament author that's going to say that he expected a resurrection out of this. Hmm. So notice that he's speaking, we're going to come back. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And then he himself carried the fire and the knife and the two of them went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's the moment you think Isaac had to feel a little weird. (laughs) Hey, Dad, I got the fire, I got the wood. Where's the offering? Yeah. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You need to think about that because we're going to talk about it in a second. God's going to provide the lamb. The two of them went on together. When they reached the place he had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called them from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not wait, lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now I know that you fear God. I, I wonder who that was for. Now I know that you fear God. Abraham probably already knew he feared God. And God already knew he feared God. Who's the one person in the story that didn't know that his life was secondary? Be Isaac. Huh. He said, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. There it is again. Abraham looked up and there was a thicket. Um, He saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, listen to what he called it, the Lord will provide. And to this day, to this very day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abraham from heaven a second time, and he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, 
Notice who he swore by. He didn't swear by Abraham. He didn't swear by any earthly. I'm reading a book on covenants right now. And this is a special kind of covenant. Abraham says, or God says, I swear by me because I can't trust any of you. I swear by me. He says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, there it is again, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore and through your offspring. Through your offspring, what? All nations on earth will be blessed because you have what? Obeyed me. So Father, I pray that today you would add your blessing to your word. There's a message in this story. I pray that the message would be heard loud and clear. Help me and Pastor Robin to communicate thoughts that need to be heard and that need to be digested and dealt with. But God, I pray most of all that the message would be heard in the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Before you're seated, turn to somebody close to you, give them a big smile and say, man, you look good today. Man, you look good today. All right. So here's what we learned from this story. And I'm going to say this very, very clearly. Parents, you parent from what you know. You parent from what you know. The baby did not come. We, I remember our first one came home. We came home. We had the baby in the car seat. And we laid her in the living room floor and like, now what? They don't come with an owner's manual. You're not quite sure what to do with them when you move Not like home. change the oil every 30,000 no, no, miles or something? It, no. Okay. So, so because of that, Abraham parented from what he knew. And he was in a culture with the Canaanites that actually did all kinds of sacrifices, including their own children. So that's where we're talking way back, guys. We're talking, he was literally in a land and a people that it was okay to sacrifice their own child. And what we're going to show you now, just to bring it a little bit more home, is a short rendition of that. that is stark. That's sort of harsh, isn't it? It's stark. It's harsh. Why would Abraham think that's okay? It's because he grew up in a culture. There was a culture surrounding him that told him it was our right to do that kind of thing to your child. And we live in a culture as well that we have to be careful that we do not let cultural expectations set the standards of our relationship with our children. So what happened was as we find out later, hundreds and hundreds of years later, that this moment in time actually changed the trajectory of the Jewish people. They no longer, they were 
totally different group of people. They did not sacrifice their kids. So this one act of Abraham where he decided that, you know what, God is bigger, but I'm not sacrificing, God provided, actually changed that culture and that area by one man. So the trajectory is that even now today, Jewish people and Christians who come out of the Jewish faith would value the life of children. Uh, that's not how the culture was there. They would expose them. They would put them out to be eaten by animals. Um, all kinds of things like that. If they were inconvenient, you just killed them. And Christianity changed that from that moment on. So Abraham changed the impact of the culture, both on his family, but also on us today to this very time. So all parents are impacted by their culture and their past experiences. And um, you know what, sometimes you learn those things. You say, you know, you have goals of, I'll never do that, or that's not what I'm going to, right? Okay. Oh, that's not how I want to raise my kids. So I would, I would just say, don't have just not goals. You've got to have goals of where you're headed when you start parenting. So we want to raise our children um, with more than not goals. We want to raise them with an attempt to do what's best. And Hebrews chapter 12 verse 9 says, moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and respected, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good and that we may share in his holiness. So what we're introducing here is, is a concept that your family of origin has an effect on you the rest of your life. Now, our dads, moms, thought it, did as they thought best. Sometimes that was good, sometimes that was wrong. I, I can tell you now, looking back on my parenting, I made some mistakes. I did some things wrong. The things I did wrong have shaped the family, were shaped by my family of origin, and then I passed them on. And uh, there was a story about Abraham doing something like that, and Isaac caught it. So Isaac caught it, and um, as a matter of fact, in Genesis 12, 12 through 13, we're going to show that the lies of Abraham, he lied twice, specifically to save his own life. So in Genesis 12, 12 through 13, it says, when the Egyptians see you, now he's referring to, he's talking with his wife, Sarah, and they're kind of in a difficult situation. And what happens is they're in a land that's not their own. They're in a people group that's not their own. And he thinks he's going to die because of how cute she is. All right. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to kill him and take her. So this is their conversation. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they're gonna let you live. So say you're my sister, yeah. so that I'll be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And then he does it again. So that worked for him one time, so he tried it again. Genesis 21 through 18. For a while, he stayed in Greer. And there, Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. What? Now she was his half-sister, okay? But the truth is, he was trying to save his own life, and by doing that, he lied. Well, who do you think it affected? Isaac. As a matter of fact, it, we can see as Isaac's a little bit older now, and it says in Genesis 26, Abimelech summoned Isaac and said to him, she is really your wife? Why did you say that? She's my, why'd you say that she's my sister? And Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. So all Isaac did was see how his father handled situations and he decided he would try and save his own life the same exact way by saying that his wife was his sister. Amazing how that works. And I, here's a caution to the parents in the room. 
Kids are watching you. Isaac picked up the lies that his father was telling. Kids will pick up the words you use. They will pick up the way you handle problems. They will pick up if you don't treat each other right. They will literally pick that up. And, and that's part of what happens. But you know what? There's, these are generational issues. But let me tell you, there's hope in generational issues because the cycle has to stop someplace because there's genera generational blessings as well. Mm -hmm. So those blessings happen when we transfer those to our kids as well. So yes, you're gonna make mistakes. Yes, you're gonna say and do things wrong. But I tell you what, you can say and do good things and they pass those on. So I have in my hand, my mom recently moved and we have tons and tons of books that she read. And not only books, but Bibles. And do you wanna open that this up for me? It's a devotional from It's her. a devotional from Spurgeon. And um, my mom, had marks and prayers and things all over her books and her Bibles. In fact, I can remember as a child, I would come down the stairs and it was every single day I would see my mom at the kitchen table drinking her cup of tea and reading her Bible and working through these devotional books. And she literally has writings over tens and tens and I don't even know how many books. You know why? Because God made an impact on her life. And as a small child, I saw that. And you know what? She passed on that generational blessing to me and that now we hopefully pass it on to our kids as well because God made a difference in her life and she made an impact on our world. Second thing we want you to know is that Jesus is active in this messed up story. All right, so if you read the story and you have any understanding of faith, you're going to see some things in the story that were fulfilled in Jesus, right? Uh, Isaac is representative of all of us who deserve to die. He's there on the altar, you know? Abraham, the father of faith, going to kill his only son because God said to, because there was some reason, I don't know. And, and that's a setup because our Heavenly Father did offer His only Son as a sacrifice. You know, when He said, hey, look, there's a lamb caught in the bush. It's a representative that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is all over this story. And even though it's weird in its culture and it's weird in its application, and it must have messed with Isaac's head a little bit, can you see that Jesus, the prophecies of Jesus, on this mountain, the Lord will provide. Come on, on the mountain of Calvary, God provided cleansing and restoration and hope for all people for all time. There's even resurrection hinted at in this story. Even resurrection because he said, we will come back to you. And we know that Jesus was resurrected. Can y'all see Jesus in the story? I mean, he's there. And, and not only that, but... Abraham had faith in the power of God to resurrect because in Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, it says, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, is it, through, it, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in the manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So the, this whole story, as disturbing as it seems, is literally symbolic of the story of Jesus and how God gave his son and he provided the lamb and he was the lamb for our sins. And he was resurrected and he has power. And why do I say all this? Here's why. Because some of you had experiences with your parents, or maybe some of you have had experiences with your children where you didn't get it right, or they didn't get it right, or there is a generational curse that got passed along, or 
Maybe there's a generational behavior that you wish would have never been passed on to your next gen. I want to tell you something, that Jesus was there the whole time. Jesus is a part of that story the whole time. And just as, come on, I, how do we even have this story? We have this story because a guy named Isaac passed it on to his kids. Abraham was there, but Isaac was there. And Isaac saw the faith of his father, the dedication of his father, and passed it along. And, and passed along the prophecies of Jesus that we can read to this very day. And when you goof up the worst, sometimes God is standing there saying, oh, but I'm still here. And I'm going to take even what you messed up and I'm going to turn it into something good, not only for you, but for generations that come. There is nothing too good or too bad for God to not be able to make something good out of it. And, may, and maybe you're Isaac today. Maybe you're feeling like the sacrifice. Maybe you're feeling like, what more can I do? What more can I take? God's even with you all the Isaacs in the room. You feel like your life is a shambles, God's even there with you as well. So the whole point is, is that God will meet you exactly where you are. You just have to trust him to get it through and resurrect your life back again. And even when those stories don't make any sense, Jesus is still there. Jesus is in your story if you will let him reveal himself. All right, so we wanted to give you some takeaways from this story, all right? And this is where we're going to try to get pretty practical, all right? Try to bring this back around and, and talk a little bit about parenting. Some of this is going to be a little more practical than what we've just been theologically and heady, but let's, let's give you the lesson that was learned from the story. Number one, God is first. Your kids aren't first, God's first. So you make this a pre-decision in your life. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you know, if you go up on an airplane and they say, they always do the spiel, if we lose oxygen pressure, now that's not a good day. If they lose oxygen pressure and those things drop, I'm dead anyway. That's all there is to it. It doesn't matter who gets the mask first. Sorry. But okay. So, or at least that's how I feel. Um, but in any case, so they always tell you what, put the mask on yourself first and then help your child. Okay. It's that way. Our relationship with God is to be first, and then we can help our child get the oxygen and the life that they need um, because we put God first and everything else lines up. So pre-decisions, what are pre-decisions? Well, you're told and instructed how to do it. So you will pre-decide if anything should happen, the mask goes on you first so that you're not like stumbling around and you don't cause a problem. Predecisions are those moments like we've we've had a couple of timeshares. We, we had oh yeah so predecisions we've gone to a couple of those timeshare things you know what I'm talking about I'm super cheap guys I don't know if you know this about me but I like a deal okay? we took our entire family to see the Dixie Stampede we did because we sat through uh, we did timeshare but see here's the thing the reason why we can do this and and get the gift at the end is because we've predecided we don't want the timeshare to begin with. If we came in there, if we came in there with like a look on our face like, hmm, I wonder if we should do this or not, we, our 90 minutes would have turned into two and a half hours, okay? Yeah. So, because they're convinced they can, they can convince you. Here's the thing though, predecisions make later decisions easier. Right. So, there were a lot of things we predecided as a young married couple, even as a dating couple, we weren't going to have sex before marriage. 
That was a pre-decision. Pre-decision. We also had that we weren't going to mention the word divorce when we were fighting because that gives instability to your kids. We we also decided it was important to brush teeth before bed. You know, yes. these are you know we talk about these big concepts, but they're little life things too, right? You so, do not go to bed without brushing your teeth. That's right. That's true. That's true. So there are pre-decisions that make things a lot. Also, pre-decisions show where your value is. Right. So. I value what I predecide that my maybe in a weak moment I could give into. I predecide what my actions are going to be. So one of those was church attendance. And I know I can hear you. You're the pastor. Well, yeah. Well, I have to be there, but that didn't mean my kids had to be. But because I love Jesus and I have a real relationship with him, I want to put my kids in a position where they can love Jesus and have a real relationship with Him. And they're not going to get that sleeping at home on a Sunday morning. So we had pre-decided this because, honestly, my parents, who I was raised Presbyterian, so it was really important to my parents to get all of us kids to church. And we went Wednesday nights too, because that's where I learned all my Bible stories. We went on Sunday mornings. We went when there are activities, and they had predecided that. And you said last week that you had a drug problem because mm -hmm. his parents drug him to church every mm -hmm. time the doors were open. Okay, so these are important predecisions because we had a value for it. So what would happen is if we had a lot of kids, our kids were athletic and they played a lot of sports, but uh, it was just understood you're going to church and then come to church wearing your soccer outfit or your volleyball outfit, and then you go to your volleyball. It's, it just wasn't what it, what it was. And I've seen some of you parents doing the same thing. Yeah. Actually, I've seen some of you guys coming in in your cleats and your, and I say yes. You know why? I applaud you. Because you're making great decisions for eternity. Because you know what? Hardly any of us are going to be professional athletes, but I tell you what, Jesus goes with us all the way to the grave and beyond. So uh, the other thing you do is you instruct, you know, you set these pre-decisions about God being first in your life. <laughs> I, I could give dozens of stories where my mom and dad made those pre-decisions. And then the second thing you do is you tell your children why. Um, you tell your children about your faith. Tell them what's going on. Parents, what you do now will shape generations. Remember the Hebrews passage? Our fathers did as they thought best, as the you know, they had this mix of culture and, and um, a family of origin and a relationship with God. And they're in the process of parenting as they think best and growing through the process and making mistakes. And then it says this, that how you goof up even will affect their interaction with God. So be, you're responsible. So we're going to go fast here. These are the four C's of parenting from Northwestern University. So if you're a parent, you might want to pull out one of those forms in front of you that you can jot all over. Notes. And we got note cards. We got note cards on the back. Wow. Yeah. We have yeah. come a long way from yeah. the cards in the back. Anyway, we got note cards now. Who knew? You can um, take notes. So four C's of parenting. First off, choices. Give age-appropriate choices, and it helps them teach decision-making. So age-appropriate choices. What? So for instance, if... If I'm two years old, or I'm two, You're if two? my child is five, I'm not giving them the car keys. That's a bad choice on my part, right? So we go, we go out to eat occasionally, and we went, I remember the last time we went to Cheesecake Factory. Anybody been to Cheesecake Factory? Yeah, and you open up the menu, and you're like, I need four hours. This is a novel, <laughs> right? The, the menu is a novel. And all it does is create more tension, frustration, and anxiety, because I keep wanting to change my order five times, right? <laughs> yeah. 
So when there's too many choices, it actually gives a lot of problems to kids. We were reading an article the other day, and there was an article about, um, at this time in, in our history of the world, kids have uh, a lot of online options that they didn't have years ago. And the article was about the amount of stress being added to the next generation by having multiple options for everything because of the internet and being online. And, um, you know, I, I'm not, we, we're not, we're not anti-technology. She's wearing a thing on her wrist that she gets her phone calls here while her phone's down For there. For service, my phone was going berserk over there. My wrist is like this. And I'm like, you know, it's okay. I can't get yeah. the phone right now. So, I mean, we're not anti-technology, but we do, I would like to warn you parents to limit the exposure that your kids have to the internet and, and limit how that looks and feels because um, their brains are not formed enough yet to be able to handle the multitude of options. And we're gonna talk about screen time in just a second, but also there's, um, there's the goal of parenting is, is not to raise obedient kids, but to raise godly adults. So there's four different, we're gonna fly through these, four different levels if stages. you wanna call them. Stages. Stages, stages, let's call them stages of development. So the first one's gonna be demand. If they're under four years old, while we were in Niagara Falls and we saw a two-year-old just pitching a fit and the mom was like, what, what can I help? What, what would you like? What would you like? And the kid's like, wah, which is fine. They're two years old. It's not the kid I have a problem with. It's the parent that I had a problem with. So you know? the first stage is de demand. Mm. And uh, science will tell you that a child's brain, you know, it's, it's like six months before they're able Hello? to recognize you from a distance. So, I mean, their brain, it just takes time for a child's brain to develop. It takes years. By the way, just simple knowledge for you. Your a kid's brain when they're born has literally millions of brain cells that are connecting through things called synapses. And the synapses is one cell connecting to another cell, and those cells start talking to each other in their brain to form pathways for future thought and, and ideology and training. Well, when a child is is below the age of eight, what's happening is the pathways that are being used, the, path, the synapses that are being used are developing and the, the pathways, the synapses that aren't being used, though they're actually dying. So yes, your kid is losing intelligence every second. No, I'm not kidding, I, I, sorta. But what happens is this, is they don't have the synapses connected yet to make the decisions you're asking them to do. So what you're actually doing is increasing their frustration. So what you do with a child, say below the age of four is demand. The parent makes the demand and the child concurs and, and follows along with that demand. You don't give five-year-olds keys to your car. The demands, now there are studies that are done with this as well. I know some of you are saying, you know, well, I just want my kid to blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. You actually do harm to your kid if they're below the age of four, if you don't make them do what you tell them to do. And the reason you do harm, one more study. Oh, sorry, I'm just going off on studies here. But uh, um, there was a study done of kids on the playground. They're on the playground. When there is a fence versus when there is no fence around the playground, called boundaries. When there is no fence on the playground, the kids all huddled in the middle of the playground. 
and they weren't free to move around. But when there was a fence, they played throughout the entire playground to the edges because boundaries led to security. And it is your job, parents, especially in those first four years of their life, not to ask them what they want, but to tell them what they're going to do. You are the adult think like it. You're not being mean to them. What you're doing is you're helping their brain synapses form in ways that are healthy rather than in ways that are divergent and actually destructive. Second is, oh, go ahead. Demonstrate. So the second, after they get a little older, they're watching you. They're, your example is what they're following. So demonstrate and show them how to overcome problems and thoughts by their actions. So you demand, and then you demonstrate the second stage, how it's done. You demonstrate how you think. That's, that's why parents do homework with their kids. You, you are demonstrating how to think. You're demonstrating how to approach problems. But if you do their homework for them. That's not good. That just undoes everything. Right. So the demonstration stage. Then the third one is there's a direction stage where you're, they're asking you why questions. All right, you'll know that anybody ever have a kid that all of a sudden their why goes from why to why? Do you know what I'm talking, there's a difference. There's a difference between why to why? Why of this, why that, why the other? In that stage, what they need is they need you to direct them on how to form the synapses of logical thinking about how things happen. Now, we have a problem. Common sense is no longer common. And part of the reason common sense is no longer common is because the prefrontal cortex, this portion of your brain right here that does logical thinking, we're not using it in our culture because, and I'll get to this in a second, we're using this part of our, our brain back here. And this part of our brain reacts differently. So what you do during that direction stage is you're actually teaching them how to logically think. And then there's the final, which is the developed stage, where they're doing their decisions and they're coming to you and asking you questions. And, and the, problem, the problem I see in our culture today, can I just be honest with you? Good, I'm going to, whether you like it or not. The problem I see is this development stage is when you become your child's friend. And what we have is we have a lot of parents treating their two-year-olds in development stage. So when their two-year-olds become 20 years old, they're trying to teach them in the demand stage. They're trying to make demands at the wrong time. And what's happening is they can never be friends with their kids because they're at war with their kids because they never taught their kids to obey at the beginning. So when it comes time for them to logic through relationally what's going on in their world, there's no foundation for it. Make demands early. Demonstrate through your actions and your interaction with them. Direct them in their mental development. And then finally, develop them through relationship and through the coming back to bounce things off of you. So good parenting isn't how they act when they're with you. It's how they act when, they, when you are nowhere to be found. And remember, you don't want a 20-year-old that acts like a 2-year-old or 2-year-old that's trying to act like a 20-year-old. You can't get those things reversed. So second thing is consequences. So first we had choices, four C's of parenting. Second is consequences. So um, remember the goal is to raise godly adults, not obedient children. So that being said, consequences must be put into interaction. Isn't that how God treats you? When you do dumb things, God lets you suffer the consequences of those, correct? Yeah. All right, so if you, if you go to work tomorrow and then for the rest of the week you say, I just don't feel like going to work at all. And then the next week you say, I don't feel like going to work at all. If you have a boss, what will that boss do by the end of, probably the end of first week, what will he do? 
fire you. So what you're telling me is as an adult, you have consequences for your behavior. So the most healthy thing you can do to children is to teach them the consequences for their actions while they are young. But here's the catch. When you do that, parents, don't just give the, you're grounded, okay? You have to make the connector point between why they're grounded and their action. So remember to connect the dots. They're trying to learn proper decision-making, and you have to let them know why there's a consequence, not, you know, the dishes were done poorly. All of a sudden, you go off the handle and you say, redo all the dishes. Why? I thought they were fine. I didn't know that there was a problem with Okay, let me show you why. Okay, and then you're connecting the dots between the consequence and their action and behavior. And you need to do this with consistency because boundaries and consistency uh, should go hand in hand. Your boundary shouldn't move every day. So if it's funny one day, it should be funny the next day. If it gets them grounded one day, it should get them grounded the next day. You understand what I'm saying? Because isn't that how, God, how confusing is it to have the boundaries constantly moving? It's not fair to the kid either. I'm going to tell you, they're, they're looking for you for, for the fence, if you will. And if you constantly give an inconsistent boundary, they're not going to know how to act. And then we get mad when they don't act appropriately. Also, parents, be on the same page. Because I will tell you, they're smart little boogers. <laughs> okay? All right? So we would, uh, you know, one of the things, what did your mom say? What did your dad say? Do not be at odds with your spouse. Right. If you have a, a husband and wife situation, you have got to be on the same page. And if that means stepping outside and having a fight about it and yep. then coming back in, this is what we decided, then that's what you do. But you have to be on the same page. And with consistency, we had a rule in our house. I heard Andy Stanley say it years ago, and I made it my own. He said, obey first, and while you're obeying, you can ask why. Obey, while you're obeying, you can ask why. I don't mind having a discussion back on that demonstrate direct portion. I don't mind having a discussion with my child about why I want them to obey as long as they're obeying first. That's how God treats you. God says, do this. And you're like, no, nah, I don't want to. But as long, as long as you're obeying, you're all right. And then the fourth one is... Is care. And it's the parent's job to create an environment that propels the child to success. And one of the ways you do that is you praise hard work and not that they're just so awesome. You're so awesome. You're so smart. You're so handsome. You know what? You're the best soccer player this world has ever no, seen. No, you're not. Okay? So you have, to, you have to create an environment that propels them to succeed. So um, on that, there was a study done and the study was done, and, and what it talked about was there were two groups of people, and it's, it's a long study, but there are two groups of people, and one group of kids were told they were really, really smart, and they gave them a test, and they did really well. The other group was told they worked really hard, and they gave them a test, and they didn't do so well. But then they continued to encourage them, you're, tell them you're smart, you're smart, you're beautiful, you're awesome, you're awesome. Those other kids, they're horrible, but you're awesome. No, anyway, that was the mentality in this column. And this column was, you work hard, you go the extra mile, you study extra hard. What happened is these kids' scores kept going down and down and down on the test, and these kids' scores kept going higher and higher and higher. Why? Because you can't do anything about how smart you are, but you can do something about how hard you work. So part of caring is to create an environment where your kids understand 
that they sometimes fail and they're sometimes not the best, but they can work hard at it. And helicopter parents, please crash the stinking helicopter and get away. We'll talk about that next week. All right, go. Um, so what you focus on is going to happen. So if you catch them doing something well, tell them because it will be replicated. So, you know, who wants to be yelled at all the time? But if somebody catches me and says, and say, thank you for opening that door for that lady as she walked out, guess what? They're going to do it again next week. You right. know why? Because what you praise is replicated. All right. So last of all, we were, we were driving down the road this past week and we saw yet another scenario that I, I had to talk about. So give me five more minutes here, all right? Uh, there was a van driving down the street and the screen was going. They were probably going five miles, but they had to turn screens on for their kids to watch them show. And I got to thinking about all the screens I've seen in kids' hands. Tablets, TVs, phones. They're everywhere. Am I correct? All right. So I read a book this past year and uh, I'll just give you some of the content. And while he's looking that up, I'm going to say, though, this is not just a kid problem. This is an adult problem. Yes. Because we were in the mall, and three adults were on their phone while their kids were running around trying to play. And I'm going to say, adults, remember, you're setting an example. Get off your screens and interact with people like is health in a healthy way, because you know what? That's going to teach your kids more about how to act. All right, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to read this because I, I'm going to read it word for word and I want you just to listen, all right? Theatrical entertainment refers to programming that is designed through pretense or artificial enactments to cause emotional reactions while for the most part disengaging critical reasoning. So what that means is this. Your prefrontal cortex is this portion of your brain, and this portion of your brain is your limbic system with your uh, um, um, amygdala back in this area. So uh, what, what I see happening and what's going on and what the book is pointing out is that theatrical entertainment are shows designed just to entertain the kid. Just entertain. Now, we're not talking here about shows that are teaching them to uh, like read or things that are teaching them how to add or subtract or things like that. We're talking about entertainment. And what they're saying is, is that we learned earlier, and I talked about this, the brain development, we discovered that during the first eight years of life, the brain is busy killing off synaptic connections by the hundreds of millions. So neural circuits that are used are kept. Now, there are multiple studies that were done, and these multiple studies all said the same thing, that where the prefrontal cortex was developed in children through play and through interaction, those children, they actually had lower levels. Well, I'm going to read you the quote. Studies have shown that the more the theatrical entertainment children view during the first eight years of life, the greater the risk of attention, focus, and concentration problems. In other words, all dysfunctions of the prefrontal cortex and the higher the rates of violence, impulsive behavior, sexual acting out, increased anxiety and mood problems. So have you noticed how every worship song now is talking about fear and anxiety all the time? Why? Why do we have this fear and anxiety and depression pandemic in our culture? The reason is we've got a whole generation now that have grown up that were raised on TV and raised on tablets and devices. And what happens is your limbic system, your, your 
amygdala, which is your, your lizard brain, your fight, flight, or freeze mentality of your brain, is being stimulated constantly, which causes, you ready for this? It causes anxiety, depression, and feelings to overwhelm your life rather than logical thinking, which is formed up here. Now, one more quote for you, then, then we'll wrap this up. The primary issue is neural development. Overstimulation of the limbic system by theatrical entertainment while decreasing the usage of the prefrontal cortex during the developmental years results in children growing up with brains out of balance. One more thing. Part of the study was about how violence had erupted in cultures once TV and things like that were uh, injected into the culture. And without fail across multiple, we're not talking about shows like I don't know, whatever the Bang Man shows. Actually, these, the, the theory that said, well, you know, good in, good out. The problem is, is that even, even the best of shows, like Leave it to Beaver or uh, I, I Love Gilligan's Lucy, Island, Gilligan's yeah. Island, you know, some, you know, things that you would just think, Casper, oh, it's, the not, friendly ghost. it's not bad for them. This isn't a bad show, okay? Even that, because it was mindless entertainment, was disconnecting the two and causing the brain to be off balance. Because what was happening is it was firing the passion center, not the logic center. Are y'all getting this? And remember, kids every day are throwing away brain cells, throwing away synaptic connections. What, what, what do we do about this? I, can I issue you a challenge, especially if you're a parent of small kids? Don't give them a device. Give them a spoon and a bowl. I'm not kidding. Give them dirt. Let them play in dirt. God made dirt. Dirt don't hurt. Do something really wild and crazy. Get on the floor and play with them. Do something crazy, cross-cultural. Our culture, can I, can I go ahead and say, our culture is sacrificing a generation on our desire for pleasure and freedom. And I think it's time for us to re-embrace the fact that God gave us kids. And if we're going to raise up a Daniel generation that thinks differently in the face of a culture that's trying to destroy them, I believe it's going to happen because we choose God first and we choose to actually parent our kids rather than letting cultural norms drive us. And, and you know, it goes right back to where we are. Put God first. You put God first and the rest of it works out. And second, Jesus is right there in the middle of whatever situation you're in, wherever you find yourself. See, here's the hope. You know, I read this and you're like, man, I goofed up. I put my kids, you know, I let them watch five episodes of Barney a day, okay? I, I, man, Sesame Street, it sounded so good at the time, okay? Here's the thing, God is in the midst of this and it doesn't matter who you are or what happened, I will tell you there's hope today. You know what would help your kids? So what if you put them in front of Barney? Let me tell you something. It would help them to see a parent who loves God and serves God with all their heart, even if you've goofed up. So there's hope in the midst of it all, guys. Don't worry. Your child isn't going to go up to be a mass murderer because you put them in front of Barney. But what we are saying is, if you want healthy development, especially you parents of younger, of younger kids, make sure that you're giving them creative play and not recreational play just so that you can get something else done that you need to on your list. The final message is this, and she just hit it, but I want to I wrap it up and say a prayer. The final message is this.
when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, Jesus was in the story. Is that correct? He's all over the story. It doesn't matter where you are on this spectrum. If you've been a good parent, a bad parent, you were a bad child, or you had bad parents. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Here's the deal. Jesus is all over your story. If you'll let him, if you'll let him, he can bring hope, healing, restoration, and life to you, no matter what your story looked like. Because he is the God who raises the dead. And if he raises the dead, he can remake brain cells. <laughs> All right, we're gonna pray. Y'all ready? Let's pray. Father, we pray over a generation that's coming, that this generation they would experience the love of God that Jesus, you would be in their story in the middle of their craziness. In the middle of the craziness of a culture that's trying to kill them and lead them astray. You would be in the middle of their story. You would give them life. You would give them hope. God, you would step in there and that, that we would have a generation raised up to be a Daniel generation that will follow God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, even when culture's leading them astray and changing their names and messing with them in and out. God, you would be the God that gives them hope and life. God, we pray for every parent in this room that as they love their child, as they care, whatever stage of development they're in, God, they care that they would, in this stage, be an example of Christ-likeness. That, God, that in this stage, they would love, they would put you first, and they would shine the love and the mercy of Christ on their children. And, God, we pray for children's children to be raised up, and children's children's children to be raised up out of this room, out of those hearing my voice, and that their lives would be changed forever for the power of the gospel and for full life, full living, blessed living, the kind of living they're proud of, the kind of living they want to pass on to the next generation. And God, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.